All right, we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came, came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, before we jump into things, I do want to highlight that the casual softball team is in the championship game tonight. Pretty exciting. I'm, I'm looking at the captains here. What time is it? It's six o'clock, Curtis Field. So you heard it. If you want to go out there, there's usually a good group of folks cheering them on. Uh, one in the nail biter, like by like in the, the bottom of the seventh, I guess, is what they play. So anyways, congratulations. We're rooting for you guys. Uh, no pressure. Um, uh, how are you at living with the if-onlys in life? You know, if only this had gone that way, uh, things would be better. If only I had not done this or that, uh, things, things would be better. Uh, one of the books I read over uh, vacation was kind of a sci-fi page-turner thriller that basically took on this premise. It was all about like having alt realities, like, like I said, a vacation read. And it was just this idea of like, man, if we could go back and kind of redo things that we regret or kind of redo circumstances that kind of befell us certain ways, like how would life be different? And I feel like even if we don't think about it in these terms, all of us wrestle with the if onlys in life. If only my career was at this place by now, things would be better. Or if only I had this certain amount of money more, then things would be good. Or if, if my health was better, if I could own in this very expensive area. Um, I think the pandemic has done this for a lot of us. I think the pandemic, I just continue to believe, has all sorts of impacts in our life that we, we don't even scratch the surface of. They're just underneath. And I imagine we have a lot of if onlys related to that. We have a lot of if-onlys when it comes to relationships. If only my marriage wasn't in so much pain and hurt right now. If only I was married. Uh, maybe we get spiritual about it. If only I had more purpose or meaning in my life. If only God showed up and worked things out, then things would be good. Uh, in the scriptures, Joseph, this ancient character in the, in the scriptures, Joseph, uh, had many, many intense, far more intense and severe if-onlys than we do. I mean, his if-onlys like go to the moon and back compared to ours. And what I really love about his story, and really in a lot of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament of our, of our Bible, is we have not just a snapshot of his life, but really a lifetime of Joseph wrestling with these if-onlys. And what's incredible is that in the midst of it all, through it all, Joseph doesn't just get by. He thrives, and it's all because he was able to trust in God's sovereignty. 
We're in this series, Knowing God, and that's going to be our focus today, the sovereignty of God. Because if you and I can just lean into and trust just a little bit more deeply God's sovereignty, oh my goodness. In fact, we won't just get by or even just thrive in the if only. The promise here is much greater than that even. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into Joseph's account. Father, uh, thank you for uh, this morning that we can gather uh, together under your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it that you'd give us each your spirit to understand it more clearly, and you'd give us hearts to, to, to hear, uh, ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is you have for us today, whatever that might be. We love you. We thank you for the way you minister to our hearts and you want to minister through us. Would you do that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Joseph had a very tragic life, to say the least. Uh, for starters, he was born into a highly dysfunctional family. He had 10 older brothers who were just jacked up dudes. And these guys were punks, bullies, uh, murderous even. Now, granted, they lived in the ancient world, but even apart from their interactions with Joseph, these guys were just bad dudes in, in, on many fronts. They were, they were conflicted guys, com, uh, complicated guys. Um, and then Joseph's dad didn't really help things by playing favorites. Uh, man, if you want to mess up family dynamics as a parent, play favorites. I mean, I will hear about it uh, forever if I just pour this much more OJ for one kid than the other. I see, actually see some parents nodding as I'm saying that. It's like, you got to be real careful because their kids will be like, you got more, she got, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, essentially made it so that Joseph didn't have to work in his childhood. I mean, he basically got a free ride. His older brothers, meanwhile, were out slaving in the fields, just working it up out there. And then, of course, the classic famous story is uh, Jacob, Joseph's dad, gave him an ornate robe, which might not sound like a big deal, but in the ancient world, that was a, that was a major deal. Now, Joseph himself didn't help things in having this habit of ratting out his brothers. Any older siblings here, like, love when your younger sibling would rat you out? I mean, that's a pain in the neck. But then it also didn't help him when he, would, when he had a couple of dreams that he probably, in hindsight, should have kept more to himself. Here, here's one of those dreams. It said in verse 5 of chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. This little phrase here, they hated him all the more, is not just repeated twice in our few verses that I read here. It's actually repeated a number of places, meaning that his brothers couldn't just not stand Joseph. They, they, actually, they absolutely despised him. And it kind of makes sense on a level. Again, older siblings here. Could you imagine if younger brother or sister came up to you back in the day and said, hey, I had a dream. Let me tell you about it. You're going to be bending your knee to me, serving me in the future. It's like, yeah, you probably would have let them know a few things in, those, in, the, in that time. Well, after years of these dynamics playing out and their aggressive nature, these older brothers of Joseph eventually plotted to get rid of him. Uh, an opportunity came one day when they're out in the field. Uh, the fields that they normally grazed upon, uh, their, their cattle grazed upon, they, they was taken or for whatever reason. So they're out a little bit further away. And it just happened to be a day that Joseph ventured out from daddy's security to check up on them. And they saw him coming over into their field and they figured, all right, here's our chance. 
In fact, the first thing that came to their mind is, let's kill this guy. Like, man. Thankfully, better minds prevailed that day, and they decided, let's not do that. Let's go ahead and just throw him into an empty water cistern. What ended up happening is they stripped him of his clothes and sold him for 20 pieces of silver into slavery. Now, to pause for a second here, imagine if you were Joseph, right? You're being carted away to some distant, faraway land, and you're hearing this foreign language you don't even understand, and you know that your brothers have literally just sold you out. Like, what would you be feeling in that moment? I mean, talk about an if-only, right? I mean, he didn't really do hardly anything wrong. I he was kind of a brat, you know? Probably didn't realize that all that well. But really, I mean, to this degree, like, deserving this, like, no. Could you imagine what he was feeling? Just confusion, anger, resentment, all the rest of it. And this is just the start of Joseph's if-onlys. Eventually, he was sold into, uh, in, in Egypt to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And while he probably didn't understand it, at least in this sense at the time, the writer of Genesis makes it clear to us that, yes, Joseph's going through these hard circumstances, but, but God was with him. Here's what it says in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So despite these terrible circumstances, things are going just about as well as they could have gone for Joseph. And even still, while Joseph is gaining favor and blessing, things don't last. Because Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. I haven't seen an episode, but I imagine this is kind of like Desperate Housewives right here. Uh, here's, here's a woman of great privilege, lots of time on her hands. She took a liking to Joseph. And what's really remarkable, if you stop to think about it, is Joseph refused those advances. And I, I think that's kind of remarkable in the sense of Joseph didn't really have anything to lose at this point in his life. But out of integrity for his master, for Potiphar, the way he had been treating him, and out of integrity and in his convictions for the Lord, Joseph said, no, I'm not going to do this. Here's what he said. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wait a minute, Joseph. Where was God when you were thrown into a water cistern? Where was God when you were sold into slavery? It's really incredible. Despite these heart-wrenchingly challenging, if onlys, this, this journey that Joseph has been on, he remains faithful. When circumstances could have easily led him to anger and resentment, Joseph just kept his integrity and kept being faithful. And his reward for such a righteous response in the face of temptation, well, Potiphar's wife framed him and had him thrown into jail where he ended up for 13 years. I mean, 13 years. What were you doing 13 years ago? Back in 2009. Like that, That's the time Joseph ultimately would end up being in jail for. And for all he knew, he was there indefinitely. But for 13 years, he was in jail. What would you be thinking about if you were Joseph in that time? What would go through your mind, through your heart, given those circumstances? When he has not only been mistreated or had these hard circumstances befall him for not really having done anything wrong, but now for even having done things rightly, righteously, by saying no to temptation and not giving in. But even still, in prison, the Lord is with him. 
Uh, Genesis 39, verse 20 says, But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he made Joseph responsible of all that was done there. Uh, I've always thought, I'm just kind of, you know, just in my musings, that the, the worst part, part about being in prison ought, ought probably not be just like the fending for yourself and like the boredom, but, but maybe just the torture of just understanding your life is just wasting away, right? And here he was for 13 years just thinking about all this stuff. I mean, it kind of gives you perspective, right? When you think about the if-onlys in life, I mean, Joseph's here were so intense in terms of their duration and, and, and severity. And yet, even at this lowest of low points, Joseph is faithfully serving others, even while he's in prison, faithfully serving the Lord. Well, eventually, 11 years in, someone had a dream in prison. Actually, two people did. But one of those dreams was by a former cupbearer of, uh, to Pharaoh. And Joseph makes it clear to him that only God can interpret dreams. So he, he hears the, the dream of the former cupbearer and says, okay, yeah, God's shown me what, the, what this means. And he says basically that your dream, cupbearer, means that you're going to be restored to your position. You're going to be restored and placed again at the side of Pharaoh. And then Joseph added, hey, and when, you, when that happens, which it certainly will, remember me. Because I've been wrongly treated, I've been wrongly accused and placed here in prison Remember me when you come into Pharaoh's presence and when you have his ear and speak on my behalf to him. Get me released. And, you know, having heard a very favorable interpretation of his dream, the cupbearer goes, okay, for sure. That sounds awesome. If all that happens the way you said it, I will remember you. And then when he's restored, he promptly forgets about Joseph. And then Joseph spent two more years in prison. Okay, we've beaten this like a horse for a minute here, but one more time, imagine for those two years what you'd be thinking and feeling if you were Joseph. What kind of narratives would be going through your head? You know what I mean? Like what, what kind of if-onlys would you be thinking about, feeling about in, in the midst of this challenging circumstances? Finally, Pharaoh himself has dreams. Nobody can interpret them. Uh, everybody's trying to figure out what to do, and then a cup bearer, the cupbearer has a moment where they go, oh, I kind of I remember a guy. <laughs> And so they have Joseph brought, brought in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And if you know the story, you know the dream is essentially saying that there's going to be seven years of great abundance that Joseph tells Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Just great abundance, followed by seven more years of just severe famine. And Joseph says, hey, uh, let Pharaoh be wise and take heed of all this and have somebody in charge to help, help the country through all of this. Pharaoh says, all right, you're my guy. That sounds good. You do that. And so finally, after all these years, after all this incredible journey, these hard circumstances, Joseph's finally beginning to see, oh my goodness. Okay, wow, this is cool. Because Pharaoh basically puts him second in charge, second only to himself. And that's what happens. Joseph, for the next seven years, collects about a fifth of the grain that's produced so that when year eight comes along, he's able to distribute it. And it turns out when year comes, eight comes along, it's, the famine was not only so severe that it impacted Egypt, it impacted beyond into further surrounding regions, such that even early on into this severe famine, Joseph's own family ventured down to try to, to get grain from him. Uh, there's so much more in the story. We're not going to talk about all of it. But the very short of it is a game starts to ensue from this point. Because Joseph's brothers come into his presence. 
And Joseph recognizes them, and they don't recognize him, which kind of makes sense, right? Eventually, he does let them know that, hey, I'm Joseph, and they have a bit of a family reunion. Um, but that actually brings us up to our text today. With all this is in the backdrop, we get to our text today to kind of understand. We're going to go through some quick principles here. But our text says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father had died, so that's immediately what had just happened. Their father had died, uh, Jacob, had gone to be with the Lord, and they said, his brother said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? I'd say that's a fair question. <laughs> what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? Because we kind of messed him over in this whole thing. What if he holds a grudge and pays us back? He's holding all the cards. He's the one in charge here. He could do more than just withhold the food. What if he does that? Uh, that's the situation he's, he's in. Uh, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. By the way, reading up on like commentaries and you know, biblical scholars, we have no idea whether or not uh, the father actually gave these instructions. In fact, it's likely they didn't have instructions from their father. and They're just making stuff up to try to get Joseph not to come down on them. Your father left these instructions before he died, Joseph. This is what you were to say. Ask, ask him to forgive your brothers and the sins and wrongs that they've committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants, of the, of the God your father. When their message came to Joseph, check this out. Joseph wept. It's incredible. Okay, so here's some principles. That backdrop, with all these if-onlys that Joseph has just been wrestling through, grappling through just his whole life to get to this place and to see it pan out the way it does. What are some principles for us when we face the if-onlys of life? Number one, hard circumstances are going to shape you. The question is, are they going to shape you toward or away from the likeness of God? Hard circumstances are going to shape you and me. Are they going to shape you more into the likeness of God or away from the likeness of God? Because in this circumstance, Joseph wept. His brothers were freaking out, and Joseph wept. What's going on there? Look, for his brothers, here was a moment where they were finally experiencing kind of a pretty hard circumstance themselves, right? Not to the degree Joseph had and for how long he'd faced these things, but they're freaking out, and rightly so, because, man, Joseph could bring the gavel down on them. They're freaking out. But for Joseph, in the midst of seeing his brothers, when he could have just been thinking all these years about, boy, what would I do if I held the cards— He's moved to compassion. He weeps. What's, what's going on there? He's, the, all these hard circumstances were making him more into the likeness of God who has compassion even for those who are undeserving. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Have you ever known a person? Have you ever known a person who's been through some hard, hard things in life? And sadly, it moved them in the direction of their heart just kind of hardening? Have you known someone like that? I'd, I'd say almost certainly everyone's done something like that. Have you ever known somebody who's been through hard circumstances, been through the ringer, and it's led them to have a softer heart? That's incredible. When that happens, if you know a person like that, they are about the most compassionate, loving, gentle, able to offer love and care people on this planet. Because it's moved them to a softness. They've been through it, and they are soft for it. They've been moved into the likeness of God toward him. Joseph wept. He was crying for his brothers out of compassion. 
Here's another thought, and by the way, sorry, slides team, this is not going to be on the board. This came to be in my preparation this morning. God can use hard circumstances to prepare us for, the fut- for future endeavors, for future ministry. What hit me as I was reading the text in preparation uh, this morning was these repeated thoughts along the way, and Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household. And the prison warden put him in charge of the prison. And then ultimately, and Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. It's like God was using all of that preparation work ultimately for this wonderful thing that Joseph didn't know was coming. And by the way, I don't want to try to imply this is formulaic. You know what I mean? Because this story is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not to say, hey, if you are faithful over here, it'll mean X, Y, and then Z. But it does mean that God is looking at our heart. He's trying to shape us in the privacy that we'll be faithful and able to be there in the public space. And you know what also is interesting to me? Joseph was able to, have, to be strong and to have a strong spiritual fortitude when things were hard so that he was able to be spiritually fortified when things were good. Now, that, that, this might sound kind of funny or even counterintuitive, but it seems to me that it's harder to be faithful when times are good, not when they're hard, in a sense. What do I mean by that? Because when things are good, it's like, man, I could be faithful. It makes sense. I could follow. But when things are hard, if man, if you were shaped in that time when things are good, man, things like pride, things like self-reliance, things like just going status quo uh, come together for you. God can use even the hard circumstances to prepare us for future ministry and future endeavors. And then this will be on the board for you. Trusting God's sovereignty frees you and me to forgive and to release resentment. This one to me, I think is so key. And so central to this text, trusting God's sovereignty frees you to forgive and to release resentment. Anger, resentment, seeking vengeance can absolutely steal your joy. Um, I was reading a book on psychology a few months back, and the author was making the point. He said, he said bar none, one of the greatest enemies to a healthy marriage is resentment. He said resentment is just way up there in terms of an enemy of healthy marriage. What's resentment? Resentment is anger left unchecked. And anger left unchecked often produces narratives that are quite destructive. And the question becomes, not, not only does resentment steal our joy, our peace, but it also steals us from the ability, robs us of the ability to be able to love and serve and care for others. Because if you have resentment towards your wife, you have resentment towards your boss, you have resentment towards your neighbor, towards your parents, how are you going to be able to love them? Now, you may say to me, well, they're not really deserving of my love. Okay, but let's just set set that aside for a second, whether they're deserving or undeserving of, of your love. What is that doing within you if you're holding those grudges, you're holding that resentment? I think C.S. Lewis put it best and most famously when he said, when we choose not to forgive, it's like drinking poison and waiting and watching for the other person to die. (laughs) Resentment, seeking vengeance, it can absolutely consume us. And think about it this way. If Joseph was nursing a grudge, which his brothers thought very well he could have been doing, and hey, objectively speaking, I think you and I could all see that he could have easily, in all that time, with all that happened, been nursing a grudge, nursing resentment, Do you think he would have been a place where he was weeping for his brothers out of love and compassion for them? By the way, do you think you've even been been in a place to have the fortitude to stand before Pharaoh and say the things the way he said it, how he said it? 
But trusting in God's sovereignty can free you and me to forgive and to release resentment. Uh, notice in verse 50, uh, excuse me, chapter 50, verse 19, it, sa- it says, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think it's really important, important to notice here that Joseph doesn't go, you know what, what you did, brothers, wasn't that bad. Joseph does not say to them, you were young, you know, it wasn't a big deal. He says, no, you intended it to be harmful. He's calling it out as evil, not just writing it away. But at the same time, and this is what really blows my mind, is after having been thrown in a cistern, after having been sold into slavery, after having been framed by Potiphar's wife, after having spent all this time in prison, Joseph also doesn't blame God. He doesn't go after his brothers, which he could have easily done, humanly speaking, justifiably so. And he doesn't come after, he doesn't blame God. With your if-onlys, are you able to do that? I'll confess, that's hard for me. It's easy for me to point the finger, even if I don't realize I'm doing it, until I stop to do some soul search work, to realize that I actually am blaming God. Does that make sense? Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph says, you intended harm, brothers, but God intended it for good. God, in his sovereignty, was working in it all. Here's Joseph's perspective. Joseph's perspective is harm comes from people, not from God, but God takes it all, including the bad, and works it all for good. And because he was able to trust God's sovereignty, he was able to, including, and especially in the hard times, be free to forgive and to release resentment, not be consumed by it. But what's more is Joseph wasn't able just to get by. He was actually even able to just thrive. He saw something far, far greater in the midst of all of it when he goes on to say God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, quote, the saving of many lives. Pastor Ben was here last week talking about purpose, how God has a burning desire in his heart to include us in his eternal plan. It seems to me one of the greatest inhibitors of that working itself out in our lives, at least to the degree that maybe God wants it to, is when we hold on to anger, when we hold on to resentment. It's also due to our pride, which gets us into the next thought. Trusting God's sovereignty can free you from the grip of pride. What, what do we mean by that? The grip of pride in this sense means believing that we are sovereign. <laughs> it is really easy to believe in life that we are sovereign of things. And when things don't go the way we thought they should go or think they should go, well, that's just language of we think we're sovereign. We know best. We know how it should work out. But Joseph doesn't go anywhere near that. He could have come down on his brothers. He had every essential right to come down on his brothers. But instead, he wept. And the reason he was able to do that, the reason he was led to that, is because he ultimately understood his spiritual poverty. Where do we see that in this text? Look, he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, oh, brothers, you intended it to harm. Hey, you're sinful people, but I'm a sinner. I mean, who am I to say I can judge you here right now? Who am I to bring the gavel down? God is the one who carries out his justice. He knew what the, the writer of Romans would years and years later, we have recorded in the New Testament, when, it, when he said, do not repay evil for evil. 
Skipping a few verses here, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. What's that saying? It's, it's saying that God ultimately will carry out his righteous judgment. It will be perfect. All the wrongdoings in this world. God's not blind to them. He sees them. He's going to deal with them. Bring out justice and repay the evils of the world, all the wrongdoing. So we can therefore, as that same text concludes, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Meaning, we can trust God's sovereignty and not our own. This was the story of Joseph. And because of that, he was able to thrive and not only that, be a part of the saving of many lives to such an incredible degree. He didn't just get by through the Ephonians. He was able to be a part of some amazing things. Because he moved towards the Lord. He was shaped into more of his likeness, moved to compassion, even for these guys who didn't deserve it, even as he understood he didn't deserve any of God's love that, he was, that was lavished upon him. And we're told in this incredible moment, Joseph wept. Does that sound familiar? One of the most famous verses in the Bible, even if you haven't read the Bible too much, maybe you know, it's Jesus wept, the one... Every Sunday school kid tries to memorize first because it's just two words. Jesus wept real quickly, didn't shed a couple of tears, wept. Grown man weeping, sobbing. Jesus wept. And what did he weep for? Well, ultimately, he wept because of the effects of sin in the world. You know, every story essentially is a pointing to Christ. That's what Jesus said uh, after he rose from the dead with a few of his disciples. Which is to say, Joseph is just a faint shadow of who Jesus ultimately would be. Jesus is the true and greater Joseph. Jesus himself was stripped of his clothes. Jesus himself was sold for silver to go to the cross. And he wasn't just betrayed at the hands of his couple of his brothers who were just being idiots. And Jesus was sold, sold out by all of us for the sin of, of all of humankind in order to offer us Life in order to offer us forgiveness. When we were undeserving, God loved us. When he had every right to judge us, come down hard on us, Jesus wept and gave his life for us. What's incredible to me of the story of Joseph recorded in the first book of the Bible is Joseph had very limited, a very limited vantage point to know this about God, but he understood it and trusted God's sovereignty. But you and I, we have Jesus. We also have verses like Romans 8, 28, which I imagine many of you could say without even reading it. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for good. He is sovereign and he is good. And he's working even the hard things, especially the hard things, for good. Can you trust him in that? With the if-onlys, can you trust him with that? With the narratives, wherever that takes you, can you trust him? Because his goal is not that you just get by, which that would be nice for some of us. His goal is not that you even just thrive, which, okay, sign me up for that. His goal is to accomplish the saving of lives. What are we talking about? Helping people know the eternal love of God through Jesus Christ. Helping them taste and see that even when you are facing hard things and it seems hopeless, there's a God who loves you. Even if you know you to be undeserving, that's the point. He came to die for you and me. We get to be a part of that. Does that mean that God turns a blind eye at the injustice? Well, no, it doesn't mean he's turning his blind eye. In fact, the scriptures are clear. He's going to 
take care of, he's going to bring justice once and for all. And he's going to do it perfectly and rightly. It means he sees your circumstances. Maybe they're hard. Maybe he sees your decisions that you've made that you regret. Actions that you've done that you regret. He sees all of the if-onlys and works in it all for good. Will you trust him? Will you lean towards him? Let's pray. Father, it is a hard yet beautifully wonderful thought to know that we are not in control ultimately. You are. That you are sovereign. And while this is a wrestle for many of us, it's not an academic, purely thing of the mind, but, but something that we feel, many, many perhaps today, acutely, the heart level, it's hard. There's tears involved there behind these if-onlys that, that are being wrestled with today. It is so good to know that ultimately we're in your loving hands. So, Father, I pray, especially for those who are in the midst of that kind of season, that you would, even if they don't see or understand exactly how you're moving, that you would help them understand that you're at work and that you're work for good. And I pray that you would use each of us and, and us collectively as a church to be a Joseph in this society. That when we've been through it, and actually even in the midst of being through it, <laughs> you would use us for the saving of lives. Not because we've got it figured out or we're the A team, but because, like Joseph, we see our spiritual poverty, that we desperately need you, Jesus, and we're so grateful that you sent your son to die for us. If there's anybody here today who's not received him, you can do that today by, saying, by just praying, saying this to the Lord in your heart. Lord, I receive what Jesus did for me on the cross. I receive the forgiveness. Receive it. You're my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. You are sovereign. Help us all in this. We love you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.